The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Episode 323 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from practice. Our topic today is informing family caregivers about vector-borne illnesses such as Lyme disease. Family caregivers and their family members need trustworthy, understandable and useful information about vector-borne disease. So what is vector-borne disease? Well, vectors are living things that transmit viruses, bacteria and parasites from one infected person or animal to another person or animal. Vectors are commonly mosquitoes, ticks, as I'm sure everybody knows, a kind of vicious uh, insect that sucks blood, um, and animals. So mosquitoes transmit the parasites that cause malaria. Ticks transmit the bacteria that cause Lyme disease, and that's a serious disease. Animals transmit the virus that causes rabies. People get it from the bite of infected animals, including dogs, cats, and farm animals. History of Lyme disease is that in the early 1970s, a mysterious group of illnesses occurred among children in Lyme, Connecticut, and the region. In 1981, researchers found that deer ticks transmit the bacteria that cause Lyme disease. Now, Lyme disease can be hard to diagnose because the tick bite might be unnoticed, because lab tests may be unclear, especially in the early stages, and the skin rash may be, if there is one, may be an unreliable indicator. So as a result, Lyme disease is subject to strong ongoing controversies, all of which is why our topic, informing family caregivers about vector-borne illnesses such as Lyme disease, is so important to family caregivers and family members. To discuss it, our guests are Jim Wilson and Rosanna Magnotta. Uh, Jim is president and founder of the Canadian Lyme Disease Foundation and is himself a victim of Lyme disease and the father of victims of Lyme disease. He's been involved in networking with Lyme victims and providing them with scientific information for over 15 years. In the medical research on Lyme disease, he found conflict of evidence and conflict of interest. And both of these, he says, are rife within the medical industry. Now, Rosanna is president and CEO of Magnotta Winery, the third largest winery in Ontario, with almost 4,000 awards for product excellence. 
Her early career as a medical laboratory technologist helped prepare her for an unexpected journey, tackling the obstacles that are preventing Lyme disease sufferers, Lyme disease victims, from being heard by telling the real story about this devastating disease. She's a member of the board of the Canadian Lyme Disease Foundation. She established the G. Magnotta Foundation for Vector-Borne Diseases, a non-profit organization with the primary mission of helping to establish Canada's first research facility for Lyme disease. So welcome to the show, Jim and Rosanna. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Jim, let's start with you. Please tell us about the consequences of Lyme disease for you and your family. Um, well, in 1991, uh, in Nova Scotia on the East Coast, um, I was uh, a very, very healthy uh, um, man in his mid-30s, and um, I had uh, been cleaning out my yard. My house was for sale. Uh, my yard backed on a lake, so I was cleaning out all the brush. Uh, I, during the process, I noticed that I had this rash around my navel that grew to about eight inches in diameter. I did not know what it meant. I didn't feel bad, um, uh, so I never gave it any thought. It stayed three or four weeks. It faded on its own, and uh, I went about my business. Uh, we sold the house. Um, and it was on the drive to British Columbia, where we were moving, that I started experiencing symptoms, and that included numbness in the legs and, and just weird sensations of tingling and hot spots that weren't really hot spots. And, uh, and then I found I had to pull over every couple hours for a sleep, which was very much unlike me. And... Um, and we arrived in BC. The, the doctors did a whole series of uh, mostly uh, tests, uh, testing my circulation and heart and whatnot for the for the leg issues. And, and uh, then I went to a neurologist. They couldn't find anything. But during this process, my symptoms were increasing. So they developed to uh, gut problems, to 24-hour day nausea, to uh, extreme fatigue. Um, and then my brain became pretty muddled. I couldn't think straight any longer. I couldn't keep track of thoughts. I couldn't uh, recall common words that I would use in my daily conversation. Uh, Jim, I'm, going, I'm just going to interrupt you there because yep. of the tyranny of time here. Yep. But we will be coming back to these things. But what you've painted is a picture of a very serious problem yep. that my erstwhile profession didn't recognize. Now, Rosanna, please tell us about the consequences of Lyme disease for you and your family. Well, my husband, Gabe, was suddenly experiencing some neurological problems around 2003. He namely had short-term memory loss, some eye issues, balance issues were quite severe. We went through a battery of tests, but doctors couldn't pinpoint what was wrong with him. He was then bounced from one neurologist to another neurologist for months and months and misdiagnosed over and over. We didn't have any answers from anyone for a very long time. When I had suggested to the doctors that maybe he had an infection like Lyme disease because he spent so much time outdoors, He's a hunter. He really loved the outdoors. He really loved going out with his dogs. My concerns went unheard for a very long time as well. Then when a Lyme test was finally conducted, it came back negative. So we were more in the dark than ever. Little did we know that 
screening tests in Canada for Lyme disease were so unreliable and riddled with false negatives at that time. We even had them repeated over and over, and they came back always negative. Then with little recourse, we journeyed to the United States facility where Lyme disease was quickly diagnosed, and we learned the devastating news that by now the damage could could be irreversible and potentially life-threatening. Our our worst nightmare came true. Gabe passed away after a seven-year battle with Lyme disease at only night at only 60 years old. Rosanna, that's something that's heartrending, and thank you for being so open with us about it. We're going to come back to these issues. Now, Jim, please describe for us the Canadian Lyme Disease Foundation and what it was about your experience with Lyme disease that led you to create it. Jim? Uh, well, after I was diagnosed with Lyme disease and then you know, went, went through the process of getting treatment. Uh, a decade after I got my initial bite, my child, uh, my daughter became infected with Lyme disease. And uh, she ended up having a permanent pacemaker put in her heart. But, and, and eventually got well with, with, with the ongoing um, treatment. Um, but what that struck uh, in my mind was this was not a rare disease. If two members of one family can get it, um, 10 years apart, and uh, on both ends of the, the, the big country of Canada, then this cannot be a rare disease. So I started the Canadian Lyme Disease Foundation based on that and very quickly found out that uh, the only thing rare in Canada about Lyme disease was the diagnosis. That's a very strong point. Now, uh, Rosanna, I want to ask you, um, what the G. Magnotta Foundation for Vector-Borne Diseases. Um, how, why, why was it that you um, decided that this must come into being, that it must be created? Masana? Well, you know, I, um, during my personal experience, I turned to the Canadian Lyme Disease Foundation, CanLyme, for support, and then became very, very passionate about fighting the problems of Lyme disease here in Canada. You know, it is a wonderful organization that does relentless hard work every day to spread awareness for Lyme disease, as well as informing the medical and political communities to properly address the diagnosis, the treatment, and the recognition of the disease in Canada. But there was no human tissue research being done by anyone showing the level of misdiagnosis and incidences of Lyme disease in this country or anywhere else in the world, I understand. So it became very clear that sophisticated research was critical in order to establish better testing and treatment of Lyme disease and what was needed was a central place in Canada to lead this work. I established the G. Magnata Foundation for Vector-Borne Diseases to focus on this mandate. My husband's death could not be unnoticed. I needed to continue this plight. Right. Now, what we've been hearing is that the, the work you're doing and what you both intent, have created and intend to create arises out of lack of knowledge, lack of application of knowledge, and perhaps insufficient concern about the severity of the disease. And that's a very, very powerful message. Now, um, we've reached the point in this segment where um, we're going to take the break. 
So this is Dr. Gordon Atherley. My guests are Jim Wilson and Rosanna Magnata. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Tune in every week for the Wellness Lounge, a step further with host Desiree Watson. Our program empowers you to incorporate a wellness lifestyle into your life, supported by a diverse selection of guests, including physicians, athletes, and education and government professionals while helping you realize the connection between mind, body, and spirit. You'll achieve a personal edge in injury avoidance, stress management, and personal development. The Wellness Lounge, a step further, airs Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. What does success mean to you? Is it being just like the person on the other side of the fence where the grass is supposedly greener? We harbor too many feelings of envy and suppressed anger targeted at others, and it's holding us back from our success. Tune in to Wealthy Thoughts with Richard Levy. Just by listening, you'll be empowered to make positive lifestyle changes to live the successful life that you deserve to live. Wealthy Thoughts can be heard every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Jim Wilson and Rosanna Magnata. Our topic is informing family caregivers about vector-borne illnesses such as Lyme disease. Now, both of you, let's talk about the challenges that you experienced in getting the information you needed when Lyme disease first entered your lives and whether other people now in the same position as you were experienced the same challenges. So first of all, um, Jim, what were the challenges that you experienced in getting the information you needed when Lyme disease first popped into your life? Uh, well, of course, when uh, when I contracted Lyme disease, um, the Internet was not really available. And um, so I had to find out everything on my own pretty well. It was actually my wife who, who ended up, after all of the various specialists had given up, uh, she went to her local library reading books on, on chronic disease. And, and it was through that that she was able to find a book. And in there, we recognized this rash I'd had by that time three years earlier. So there was just no information. And, and the whole thing became a 
a process of talking to doctors who had no information, no knowledge whatsoever about Lyme disease, having a test that was, that was completely inadequate, which has finally been shown. And um, so it, it, was, uh, it, it was terrible. And things hadn't improved much in the decade when, when my daughter contracted Lyme. There was still the same gap of information, the same poor testing was being done. And, and uh, so, of course, we had to look elsewhere. By then, the Internet was quite, quite a big deal. Right. Now, same question for you, Rosanna, please. Well, Challenges that you experienced. Well, you know, there was no information, period, when I was uh, battling this humongous problem. Um, I just knew that Gabe was an, was an outdoorsman. He was a hunter. I, I felt that he had been bitten because he had told me he was, and um, I had a little bit of background in microbiology, so I suspected something like a tick. Um, but every time we would go to a doctor, because he had a very neuro- neurological side, his symptoms were very neurological, each one of those neurologists who examined him went down the same traditional path of trying to match the names to his symptoms. And over time, they ruled out MS, multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and even genetic illnesses, because they kept on saying he may have a genetic, a genetic condition. But they never looked at what could be the cause of his symptoms, and that's the big problem, names versus cause. I kept on saying, you know, he is an outdoorsman, but not one doctor recognized Lyme disease, and sadly they wasted over a year of Gabe's time before we actually got real answers. The lack of the information amongst doctors ultimately cost Gabe his life, and that's bottom line. Both of you, that's a very clear and powerful argument for what you're both doing. Um, It's also... A challenge because in this day of advanced technology, internet, and all those kinds of things, the question now is let's get that information out using the best of technology. But we'll come back to that later on because, Jim, now I want to ask you based on your work with the Canadian Lyme Disease Foundation, what's your impression of the information challenges encountered by people? Now, when any vector-borne disease first enters their lives, Jim. Um, well, the, the information is still quite poor. Um, the, the provinces are responsible for most of the information dissemination, and and they are really still stuck where they were two decades ago. They they haven't changed their messaging much. They're still talking about, um, you know, 70 to 80% of people are going to get this nicely formed um, uh, rash, when in reality, less than 20% are going to get it. Um, They're still telling people that uh, you have to have been to a known endemic area, uh, which which is really a strange thing for government to be saying because they haven't investigated They've only investigated less than 1% of of our entire country. So how would they know where ticks have established in areas they haven't looked? Uh, Also, these ticks are transplanted randomly in the hundreds of millions each season by our migratory birds. So if you get robins in your yard, you potentially have Lyme disease. And and it's, it's as simple as that. But the messaging, and, of course, you have to understand that a doctor in a busy practice they operate a lot on, on recall points. 
So the recall point is that's been drilled into their head is 80% of people are going to get a rash, so I should expect to see a rash. Um, that um, they have to be into an, an endemic area. Oh, my patient wasn't to any of the uh, listed endemic areas here. Uh, it's not likely Lyme disease. Let's move on to something else. Or they they actually do the test, but typically it's way too early. Uh, they should never do the test within the first four weeks because it takes four to six weeks for humans to develop antibodies, and it's an antibody test. Or they just don't do the test at all. Right. Um, so that it's that I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop you there because we're going to come back to some of this, and I want to ask the same question to Rosanna. But I know that you're in the very very early stages of your um, of your new foundation and building the research center. But overall, what's your impression about the information challenges encountered nowadays by people seeking, seeking help from the healthcare system, healthcare providers, when any of these diseases, vector-borne diseases, first enters their lives? Well, I, I agree with a lot of Jim's points. You know, I've been involved with Lyme disease awareness for over eight years, and it's not glamorous. It's very, very hard work that at times you can feel endless, loneless, lonely, and exhausting. Uh, I mean, unlike cancer and heart disease or diabetes, when you're talking about Lyme disease or other vector-borne illness, illnesses, you're talking about something that people don't know anything about or very little about or haven't been touched by its consequences. So most Canadians don't even know what Lyme is all about or that it's actually here and spreading rapidly in Canada, including the medical community. When you take that all into consideration, you can see why Lyme patients in Canada are so alone and afraid as they watch themselves fall through the cracks of our health system. Lyme sufferers and their families are an isolated community. We've had to stick together because of the lack of understanding, the testing, and the support for this disease. To both of you, I would just comment back that on this show, Family Caregivers Unite, I've so often heard that fa families, family caregivers, first off, they want good information, what it is that they're facing, and just chatting with doctors when they're telling you something that's very bad news. And I'm not being critical when I say this. We only process half of what we're hearing. People need to read it, to see it, to think about it. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, uh, we are in a situation where a great deal of effort is going into things like research, but um, not so much of that information is accessible or intelligible to ordinary folk, and I mean that in the best possible way. And so what I hear from people, family caregivers and family members or guests on this show is first they need information, secondly they want to feel that they're not alone, and thirdly they want to feel that they can talk with others who've shared, been through the same experience that they've been, been through. Now just quickly, Jim first and then Rosanna, have what I has what I said to you rung any bells with you personally and the people you speak to? Jim? Yes, there, there's a huge gap in the, um, the availability of good information to, to, to the lay public. And uh, I've got to say that that has vastly improved uh, as the Internet has improved. Um, the information is being explained 
simpler now on many websites, including the, the Canadian Lyme Disease Foundation website, CanLyme. Um, we're making uh, a very complicated topic um, as simple as we can for the most people. And, right. and, but also, I mean, the, the lay public may be lay in terms of they're not researchers and whatnot, but an awful lot of uh, the people who contract Lyme or their family members are, are very capable of, uh, of taking research and, and looking at it and looking at the actual quality of the research. And that's where websites like um, PubMed.com which is the entire U.S. government right. research database, that, that opens a whole new door for, for people who actually can understand and read the research, and, and that wasn't available before. Right. Now, Rosanna, um, in the future, what sort of um, priority are you going to give to this information challenge, you think? Rosanna? The only way to get useful information about Lyme disease in Canada is to do the human tissue research. We have completed stage one in the ethics approval process. That means that we have developed a research protocol to define our first pilot project to conduct human tissue research, and it's been approved. To our knowledge, we will be the first in the world to undertake live subject tissue collection from multiple patient groups that have been misdiagnosed using the most sophisticated technology available. The research will show the incidences of Lyme disease in our community and the level of misdiagnoses. We will also be conducting post-mortem tissue analysis. This critical research is the only way to truly pave the way to better testing and treatment of Lyme disease in Canada. By studying the tissue samples of these patients who have suffered without really knowing what's wrong with them, we will be able to identify if they have Lyme bacteria in their tissue so that they can get immediate help instead of waiting years and maybe decades to discover otherwise, which unfortunately has happened too far too many times to Lyme patients in Canada already. Right. That's um, the best of quality research. That's world-level academic super superb research that's going to be profoundly important and I will attract attention all around the world. So at the end of the, this episode, I'm going to wish you every success, but I'll give you a little wish now because what you've said is so promising and so exciting. Now, it's time for us to take the break. We'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Etherly and my guests are Jim Wilson and Rosanna Magnotta. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Master your reality and manifest your desires effortlessly. Listen to The Trivedi Effect to find out how raising your level of consciousness can totally transform every aspect of your life. Hosted by Mahendra Kumar Trivedi with Trivedi Master Alice Branton. Our program will spotlight the nearly 4,000 documented scientific studies that have proven the transformational impact of this energy extends beyond humans to all living and even non-living matter. Tune in Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. 
Like so many others, do you put on a game face to the world? The stress of home life, work life, and personal life converge on us on practically a daily basis. Yet, so rarely do we let others see our real selves, and we carry on like we don't have a single problem. We need to connect and to find out we're not alone. Tune into Stories from the Heart of Leadership with host Shamin Sadiq to find out not only what's been created, but the story behind it. Listen live every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Jim Wilson and Rosanna Magnotta. Our topic is informing family caregivers about vector-borne illnesses such as Lyme disease. Now, both of you, let's talk about the ways in which through your work and the work of your organizations now and in the future, information challenges are being addressed. Now, I've already to some extent got an answer from you, Rosanna, on this particular point, but I want to go into greater depth. Through the foundation, when you get going into this tissue analysis research, that's very intensive, very technical, and requires a good way to convey the essence of it to people who aren't expert. They're very aware, but they're not expert in the particular stuff of tissue analysis. How are you going to deal with that, Rosanna? Well, our research will have to be peer-approved. Our research will be, have, will be evidence-based science. Like today's technology and knowledge of genomics allow us to analyze tissue like never before, and a cost to do so has come down considerably, as um, Jim alluded to before, over the last few years, making it very feasible now, now to undertake. So Canada has estimated about 2 million people currently suffering from chronic diseases of unknown origin. We hope to take the unknown out of a significant percentage of these cases. By studying the tissue samples of these patients who have suffered without really knowing what's wrong with them, we will be able to identify if they have Lyme bacteria in their tissue so that they can get immediate help instead of waiting years. Unfortunately, as I said before, it's happened way too many times for Lyme patients already. Imagine the staggering dollars that have been spent on revolving door uh, doctor's visits resulting in misguided treatments, tests medication for these patients, including addictive painkillers, steroids, antidepressants, sleeping pills, antipsychotics, and many others because they didn't know what they had. Imagine the drain on our healthcare system all these years. Our right. research project can change much of it. Right. Great. Now, to Jim, through the work of the CanLyme, the Canadian Lyme Disease Foundation, how is the challenge of understandability of information being addressed? Well, that, that's a 
difficult question to answer um, because the understandability is relative to the audience. So what we try and do is break it down for the various audiences. And um, so we, we have on our website, for example, uh, we, we have research component for, for scientists and, and physicians to access. We have a for physician section. Uh, but we also have, of course, the, the bulk of the information uh, is for the, 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 the person who isn't directly involved in the medical industry or the science community. Sure. So it, it's um, the, the challenge is making sure that we have people who advise us how to um, properly disseminate information from a very complex research paper and, and put it into words as to how it's applicable to, to you and I uh, during our, our daily life. Yep. And that, that, that requires uh, a lot of context. That's why we, we have science advisors on four different continents. And um, so we take all this information and, and we look at it. We look at the validity of the conclusions drawn in research and... Uh, and believe me, they're, they're not all valid. Uh, how they, an awful lot of the, the stuff that's published, how it ever got published is beyond us. But um, you really do have to rip apart. Just because it's published in, in uh, a prestige publication does not mean it's good work. And, right. and that's, a, that's a big problem, a very big problem uh, in, in especially the, the North American industry of, of publishing uh, research. Masana, let's take Jim's point and turn it into a question for you. When the foundation is up and running, doing the tissue analysis type research, how is the challenge of trustworthiness of information derived from the research being addressed? Now, that sounds as though it's a question coming from somebody who doubts. It's not that at all. It's that there's a certain amount, and there always has been, of the kind of thing that Jim's just been talking about. That is the sense that we're reading this research paper and it doesn't look very good to us the way they did it and the rest of it. And that's natural in research because it means that critical faculties are being applied. Does this, was this experiment done properly? Now, having, having lectured you, let me ask you the question, how is the challenge of, trustworthy of in, trustworthiness of information that you derive from your studies being addressed or going to be addressed? Well, I've kind of uh, answered that question before, but uh, to, to elaborate a little further on it, I think you really have to use the science-based, I, I mean, um, solid science-based um, information uh, or technologies. Um, if you're going to come up with um, testing protocol, they need to be accepted type of tech technology that uh, that the medical community will relate to and accept and embrace and peer reviewed so that you have a, um, you have great science, you have scientists that are lending their name to it, researchers that are working diligently on it that are that have a reputation. Um, all of this is very important because the idea of doing the human tissue um, uh, research is to be able to come up with better information that is trusted and and backed by 
those researchers and scientists that um, that have the reputation and the credibility. So we are definitely not going to start embracing technologies that are necessarily um, not that are not accepted. They're going to have to be technologies, whether it's genomics or DNA sequencing. Um, any of these other types of technologies that are embraced already that we know that we will not get uh, conflict from. And in the end, we just want to be able to get the right information, the true information of what, we, what we've been uh, delving into all this tissue uh, research uh, for and uh, what is the incidence of Lyme disease in our community, what is the, the actual percentage of misdiagnoses that's going on through diseases and conditions like multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's and the whole list that we talked about before. But it's not trying to reinvent something that is not going to be accepted. It's using what we have and that we have solid information about to, um, to show and prove, you know, a particular um, a point or um, a result. And so in the end, we just want to make it better. Yes. And you also want to, I think, am I right, to lay a foundation for others to build on with their research. In other words, what you produce will be um, an indication of lines of further research and a, a successful research foundation like yours is going to be will always be looked to for the leads for the next round of research. And it's very exciting and that's how it works. Now, Jim, through the work of CanLyme, the Canadian Lyme Disease Foundation, how is the challenge of trustworthiness of information addressed when the information is derived from healthcare sources rather than primary um, research-based resources such as Rosanna's, the one Rosanna's talking about? How do you deal with assessing the trustworthiness of information that comes from these other healthcare sources? Uh, again, what we do is use a, uh, um, um, a screening process by taking in as many science advisors as we can, but we, we don't only uh, screen it through people from science eyes. Uh, what we do is um, there's a great deal of the population who has a tremendous ability to interpret material who aren't necessarily involved in that particular field. For example, a, um, uh, an engineer, for example, may have a very critical eye for detail that a lot of scientists may not have. And so they're able to hone in on, on little snippets within research studies that just aren't quite right. And so... By screening it through not only the scientists, the physicians, um, and, and now people who are in academia but not necessarily focused on, on that particular uh, field of study, we're, uh, we're opening up the notion that other eyes can look at this and make, make a contribution. And that has been tremendously valuable. And, and that's why... When our governments and our uh, universities uh, are, are funding these research studies or coming up with policy and setting guidelines, they have got to do that with the patient and their experts at the table. 
because every time they do that without that kind of participation, there are problems. And now we have three decades of problems with Lyme disease, and, and it's no accident that the United States government upped their annual estimate from 30,000 uh, to, oops, we guess, I guess we've been missing it. It's now 300,000 cases a year. So, you know, they, they only came to that conclusion because of the pressure put on by the, the ability of this overall screening process that, that uh, foundations like CanLyme and, and other good foundations have, have done. And, and GMAG, not a foundation, is going to add tr- tremendously to that, to that whole research body because it is a very open foundation, and they, too, have access to the same body of uh, screening researchers in public that we do. Right. W- would you see any role for journalists... Uh, to interpret um, some of the findings and express them in newspapers and things like that? What, what do you think about that, Jim? Well, I, I've found that we've been trying. Uh, we, uh, there's a big role for journalists, but we've found them to be rather timid in, in that regard. Um, but there's a, an enormous role for, for, research, or for journalists to digest some of the, and, and there is some very uh, simple areas where they can look to, to, to find huge problems that are actually directing health care in, in the wrong direction. But we found an awful lot of journalists are quite timid to, to enter into that realm. Um, but yet, at the same time, I believe there's a huge responsibility on behalf of our media to to get this information out, because uh, the the media are are the the, the warning system, and they are the uh, the questioners, and so they've got to do a better job and and um, get the information and stop just going to government sources and taking their ver- verbatim as though it's good information. Right. I should put the tough questions to them just as we do. Yeah, very good. Now, we've come to the point where we need in this particular segment to take the break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Jim Wilson and Rosanna Magnotta. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We'll be back. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Question, what's working and what's not working in your life? Though we resolve each year to do things differently, and we want what's great for our businesses, our relationships, our health, and more. We don't always know where to turn when life gets tough. That's where Leading Life Large with host Rob Braun comes in. Our show challenges you to reevaluate where you are and keep pushing your way to the success you desire. If you want it bad enough, we can help you turn your life around. Leading Life Large airs Mondays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. 
Now, if you want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune in to Absurd Psychology, Straight Answers Without All the Bull, hosted by Dr. Gary Bell. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions, some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Mondays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on Voice America Empowerment. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Jim Wilson and Rosanna Magnotta. Our topic is informing family caregivers about vector-borne illnesses such as Lyme disease. Let's talk, both of you, about more things that you would like to do and you would like to see done to address the information needs of individuals and families affected by vector-borne illnesses. So, Jim, what more would you like to do? Well, I, I think it has to start right at the doctor's office. Um, there has to be better information, better training for doctors. They have got to stop dismissing people so easily when they come in with very serious concerns about things that they have read in uh, on the Internet. For example, about testing being unreliable. Uh, they go in and they, they bring this topic up with their physician, uh, and the physician just poo-poos it and says, no, we, we've got cutting-edge testing. Well, if he took or she took 10 minutes to do their homework, they would realize, no, we don't have cutting-edge testing. We actually have quite poor testing. Um, so there has to be... Um, Right at that doctor, that frontline physician, they have got to be educated. There has got to be more continuing med- uh, medical education credits provided, uh, offered, and offered in, in a way that, that uh, is actually going to inform the frontline physician so that he can better inform the patient and their caregivers to what the, the true situation is. Right now, there's second, third, fourth, and fifth-hand information coming from our frontline doctors, and, and very often it's, it's quite wrong and, and quite out of date. And right. so we have got to start right at that level if we're going to make any progress at all. Good. Right. Rosanna, what more would you like to do? I'm going to be a little greedy because I want what he wants and I have something else to say. (laughs) I really want this partnering with the Humber River Hospital to happen and I'm very excited because it will be the first digital acute care hospital in North America and it's partnered partnered with us, the foundation, to house its world-class research facility for for vector-borne illnesses. Not just Lyme, I want it to last for a very long time because I wanted to address all vector-borne illnesses. So there'll be a lot of really important work that researchers will have to develop, will have to divulge into. It's going to lead to better diagnostics and treatments for Canadians, many of whom have had to leave the country to get accurate testing and proper care. They need 
you know, they need this type of a facility to bring some order back to this country because it's, it's just, it's, it's heart-wrenching what's happening in our, in our country right now. So I think that both those, both those items are so important, what Jim has said, and I think we need this for our future. This will help right. the other. Now, Jim, back to Jim. What more would you like to see done by healthcare and social systems? They have got to immediately start to embrace, embrace the patient. Uh, and their experts uh, and and their their caregivers into the decision making process. There there's a tremendous um, um, amount of uh, expertise, and you don't have to be an expert in uh, molecular biology, for example, to be able to contribute to to what policy should be in place for vector borne disease in Canada. They've got to start bringing in the family of the affected um, because only then can they fully comprehend the results of whatever policies they put in place. Currently, it's, it's, it's a, a no-discussion-allowed um, policy where no input whatsoever, yet in the situation with, with Lyme disease, it's, it was the, the patient groups who were pointing out for two decades that the tech, testing was so terrible, and only in 2012 did Health Canada finally publish that, oh, yes, we're, our current testing model is not capable of detecting the genetic diversity of the bacteria that causes Lyme disease that we know we have Canada-wide. So why weren't they having why weren't they willing to have that discussion two decades ago when we tried to have it then so it's they've got to bring the the public and their and their experts into the equation um, because a much better model of healthcare delivery will result and uh, that's got to be done sooner rather than later right Rosanna, what more would you like to see done by the research community? You're going to be, if I may say so, a leader. You're, you know, all your team, everybody that's together is going to be in a leadership role. But what else can be done by the research community to address the kind of things that both you and Jim have been talking about? Rosanna? Well, the research community needs to embrace uh, tick-borne diseases with a high level of concern. The writing has been on the wall for 20 years that the current testing is leaving out a large percentage of, in, of the infected population. This is a very, very important uh, point that needs to be addressed, and this is what I would like to see done. Now, I'm going to ask you both a leading question. Obviously, things like information technology, represent all kinds of opportunities for getting messages out through the Internet, which many, many people in North America use already to find out more. And what they do is to take what they print off something and then take it to their doctors and ask questions. Jim, first of all, is that a function you would like to see developed? That is to say, providing let's call them briefs, for family caregivers, for individuals to go to the doctor and discuss rather than just sit there and be told everything is fine. What do you think? 
Oh, I think I think we have to do that. There's just too much information available out there now that uh, that people um, have available to assess for themselves, um, and and at least to go in to their doctor so much better informed than even 15 years ago. What the problem is, of course, is the doctors have not fully embraced that technology. So technologies are going to come out where there's going to be more interactive uh, communication be- between the doctor and the patient, perhaps even ahead of time, prior to the appointment time. Yep. And yep. Uh, I think that's really significant because uh, I, d- I think there's the, the current system where it's almost piecemeal. Uh, you got 15 minutes to get in there and tell your doctor everything, uh, but when it's a real complex series of symptoms that you're experiencing, you can't do that in 15 minutes. So right. by ha- using technology ahead of time uh, the, the, and, and really, really streamlining the situation, uh, a heck of a lot better, more efficient uh, 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 first appointment could, could be even had and, right. and, and better direct the doctors and better direct the patients. Currently, patients are losing faith in their doctors because they go into their doctors and they can quickly see that the doctor is not up on the topic at all. Right. Uh, Jim, I'm only going to stop you there because I want to give Rosanna the chance to have the last word on this. Now, what do you want to see done by the research community that itself can communicate using modern methods, internet, uh, websites, um, even internet radio? Obviously, I'm biased. Um, What more? can be done by that community to communicate in ways that are useful to patients and families and help them negotiate with their healthcare system. Rosanna? Um, I see see the research community really uh, working very closely with the medical community. I think that the doctors, uh, the doctors that are out on the front line need to have more guidance and more information, quality of information that will give them the ability to be very informative and very supportive for the patient in the clinic. I think I see it the other way. Um, the re- researchers um, will come out with very valuable information once it's been published, or it's uh, you know it's like I said before, science evidence based and evidence science based, and um, and they have an opportunity to communicate to the medical community, one of their own, about their findings and um, give them better guidance in uh, in understanding tick tick-borne or vector-borne diseases. Um, that will come back tenfold for the patient because even if the patient comes back with information that they've they've got on, you know, through the tech through other technological um, venues, they will be able to bring it to their doctors and the doctors will be supported. We we talked about physicians having better curriculums in their in their you know, pre pre med schools and other med schools and so forth. I think the research part is really critical on that piece. Right. Great. Now, unfortunately, we've come to the end of this episode. I want to say, first of all, thank you to both of you um, for all that you've pointed out to us and the, the way in which you are grasping the challenge of providing more and better information 
to people who are worried about the kind of things we've been talking about and aren't getting the kind of information, advice, guidance and interpretations that they actually need in the circumstances they face. So on behalf of us all, all I can say to you is all success to you all the time in your work, both of you. I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be Dementia Beyond Disease, New Ways of Thinking. Please join us. Same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. Hopeful.